ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week we head to Solomon Islands and explore the possibility of a lasting peace. On the 30th of June, the largest peacekeeping intervention ever undertaken in the Pacific departed Solomon Islands, having spent 14 years and billions of Australian and New Zealand taxpayer dollars. During its time in the Solomons, the mission restored law and order, built up the government institutions and rebuilt the country's police force. But what now for Solomon Islands? Can it build on the gains made under Ramsey and lay claim to a brighter future? Or is it doomed to repeat the mistakes of its past? About this time, 14 years ago, Hundreds of New Zealand men and women would have just arrived in Honiara as part of the largest peacekeeping intervention the Pacific region had ever seen, the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands that became known as Ramsey. More than 2,000 military, police and civilian personnel from around the Pacific landed in the capital to bring an end to more than five years of devastating conflict during which more than 200 people were killed and others faced rape and torture. The mission was greeted with cheers and applause from thousands of Solomon Islanders who had gathered to welcome the soldiers and police, weary of bloodshed and terror that had become an almost daily reality. Led by Australia and sanctioned by the Pacific Islands Forum, 13 other member countries as well as New Zealand took part in the original Operation Anode. But just over a month ago, after almost 14 years in the country, The mission, now just involved in policing, officially ended. It had been hailed as a huge success, as the mission's last special coordinator, Quinton Devlin, put it, a great partnership. Together, we have achieved great things in what historians and peace builders will tell us is a short period of time. Together, we have built a new and brighter future for Solomon Islands. A future which Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasse Songovare told the nation began with the present, the moment of truth. This is the moment when we must say goodbye to our friends and begin the moment of truth for Solomon Islands. A moment when we must begin the arduous journey of nation building on our own. But yes, on a firm foundation, on a firm footing established for us by the success story. Of but away from the crowds, some wounds from the tension are yet to heal. They are still within us, yeah, because we feel it and we see it like the government forces uses their own weapons to shoot us, yeah, with the uh, nation's weapons. I am Koroi Hawkins and I travel to Solomon Islands for the departure of Ramsey and to find out what lies ahead for my home country. The Solomon Islands conflict, known as the ethnic tension, or simply the tensions, began in 1998 when the indigenous people of the island of Guadalcanal, which hosts the capital Honiara, began forcibly evicting settlers from lands outside the capital. Soon those forced evictions were carried out by a newly formed militia group, the Guadalcanal Revolutionary Army, which would later become the Isatambu Freedom Movement. Accounts of the atrocities and hardships of the time were collected by a Truth and Reconciliation Commission modelled on the peace-building efforts of former Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa. One man described to the Commission the carnage he witnessed on returning to his village after police forces drove back Guadalcanal militants who had raided it the night before. There I saw a man who was shot 
and had a knife-stab wound on his body. I helped carry his body to a helicopter, but unfortunately he died at the spot. Another man was lying down in the flower hedges. The militants had removed some of the skin off his face. His two children were given a piece of biscuit each and stood over their father's body. He was rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately he died later. The evictions were blamed on the government's failure to address demands made at least two decades earlier by the Guadalcanal people to resolve perceived inequalities, including the issue of encroaching settlements on provincial lands. In return for being forced out of their homes, Malaitans in the capital had begun forming vigilante groups. These were funded and supported by local businessmen and also included recruits from other provinces who had suffered attacks by the Guadalcanal Revolutionary Army. The Commission report contains this statement from one of the initial members of the opposing militia, the Malaita Eagle Force, on the reason he took up arms. GRA militants burnt down my house and chased me out. This got me involved with the ethnic tension. Also, people of Malaita were chased out of their places. Women and girls were raped and men and children were harassed. Also, one of my relatives was abducted. I also wanted to help defend Honiara Town. When we look back to 1998, we expected the government to defend Malaitans, but this did not happen. It was a very dark time for Solomon Islands, and particularly so for women, with many sharing their accounts of the atrocities and hardships of the time with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There were several of them who were raped at gunpoint, including my own daughter. We were under his rule, and we didn't have freedom of movement during that time. In the final years before Ramsey's arrival, there was an almost total breakdown in law and order, with criminal elements and former militants no longer bound by the loose hierarchy of the now disbanded militia forces and using their weapons for their own personal gain, as this account described. A lot of them took advantage of the situation to accumulate wealth. Others, with no one to fight when guns were available, went around demanding money from people and demanding money from the Treasury. At first, Australia was strongly opposed to the notion of interfering in Solomon Islands domestic affairs. Six months later, after an official invitation from Solomon Islands, the passing of special legislation and with the blessing of the Pacific Islands Forum, the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands was born. A march through the streets of Honiara was held to kick off farewell celebrations to mark the departure of Ramsey. But in reality, the mission began leaving almost from the day it arrived. Within a year and without having fired a single shot, Ramsey had achieved its primary goal of restoring peace and was preparing for its next phase, which would take a decade to complete. That next step was state building. Ramsey now focused on three pillars, economic governance, law and justice and the machinery of government. The scale of work to be done was immense. To try and get a sense of the enormity of the task, I went to the High Court of Solomon Islands and spoke with the Chief Justice, Sir Albert Palmer. Sir Albert says during the crisis the courts remained open, but it was dangerous for people to appear. He said as a result most of the cases heard were civil ones. Criminal cases, he says, were few and far between. For instance, a principal magistrate who was from Guadalcanal uh, had been stopped at a roadblock uh, and severely bashed. Uh, the DPP then, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Mr. Uh, Wanselua, now the Deputy Chief Justice, also from Guadalcanal, for instance, also had to flee the city and took refuge at his wife's home on another province. Sir Albert says things got worse and worse as years went by. At one stage, it became even unsafe to conduct bail and remand hearings 
And so the chief magistrate registrar then had to go physically to the prison to conduct bail and remand hearings there until he was gun pointed to not appear or be killed. Sir Albert says this environment was experienced right across the public sector on top of chronic delays to public servant salaries, constant harassment and threats and intimidation from militants. He says when Ramsey arrived, the justice sector had to reorganise, reprioritise and redirect their focus in the light of the huge amount of resources the mission had brought with it. For instance, the number of judicial officers uh, increased from four judges, this in the High Court, to seven judges plus a commissioner. And these were all funded. These were in-line positions. Two judges and commissioner were funded by Ramsey. This included a number of expatriate magistrates who were also appointed to take up line positions. During detentions, there was almost a complete collapse in the government's ability to deliver services across the country. Because of this, Ramsey and the Solomon Islands government agreed the mission would also focus on restoring Solomon Islands' public sector and democratic processes. Drums and conch shells were part of the traditional welcome accorded to leaders who flew into Honiara to witness the Ramsey farewell celebrations. Four years ago, a similar welcome was accorded to Pacific leaders who came to mark the 10th year of the mission. The broad focus of the mission on governance, justice and economic stability ended then with some of the unfinished work transferred to longer-term bilateral arrangements with Australia and other development partners. Later that year, Ramsey's military component, made up of soldiers from Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea and Tonga, also withdrew. Since then, Ramsey has been a solely policing mission, with a focus on handing over the reins to the local police force. It was local officers who proudly provided protection to the host of visiting dignitaries, a big part of which involved using their sirens to cut through Honiara's atrocious traffic. But Chief Justice Sir Albert Palmer says the Solomon Islands government still does not have the capacity to support the systems put in place by Ramsey and the courts, for example, continue to receive significant bilateral donor assistance to keep the programs going. On local radio, along with commercial advertising and community messages, the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation was airing official messages around Ramsey's departure, and senior local police called on people to behave while visiting dignitaries were in the country. There were also messages promoting national unity being broadcast and plastered on billboards across the capital, Honiara. Essentially, they were a rallying call from the government, Ramsey and the local police, telling Solomon Islanders they were ready to stand on their own two feet. The other message, being delivered strongly by the Prime Minister Manasseh Songovare, was that Ramsey had been a resounding success and that the public now had a renewed confidence in government and the police. We now have a police force that gained the full confidence of the people of this country, having gone through a comprehensive disciplinary processes and can now stand tall as one of the best police force in the region. But the Solomon Islands Police Commissioner Matthew Varley says earning the public's trust was the easy part. The challenges ahead is to make sure that we can sustain the gains that Ramsey has accomplished. And that's the message that I've been giving to my officers and it's the message I've been saying to uh, the community as well. The important thing to remember here is that while Ramsey has done an awful lot um, to build and rebuild the police force, what I call the new RSIPF, it's now up to us to take what we've learned. Uh, we remember the past but we have to move forward into the future.
The official view that the Solomon Islands is ready to stand on its own two feet is flawed, according to long-serving public servant Ruth Lilongula, who is now head of the Solomon Islands chapter of Transparency International. I think that is a wrong message to send out from this country. We are not yet ready. I mean, we are ready in some places and we are not ready in some areas and we will still need the assistance of uh, our development partners and our, uh, the international governmental uh, agencies and others who are willing to help us to come and see that you know, on the surface of it, yes, we have law and order and uh, there is no fighting. People are getting on with their lives, but there's still a lot of undone things to be done because for we still have the root causes not addressed. We still have the leadership of this country that is uh, the same as the leadership before the coup. And the gentlemen, as we welcome the Governor-General of Australia, His Excellency... Australia's Governor-General, Sir Peter Cosgrove, reiterated the Pacific region's ongoing commitment to Solomon Islands to thousands gathered to farewell Ramsey at the country's Lawson Thomas Stadium in Honiara and to tens of thousands more listening to the live broadcast of the event. We, the people of the participating nations, stand proud of what has been achieved with the courage and the energy and the tolerance and the wisdom of Solomon Islanders. And this was more than just rhetoric. On the eve of the mission's departure, both Australia and New Zealand announced continued support for policing in Solomon Islands. Australia's Minister for Justice, Michael Keenan, announced $151 million to support the Solomon Islands over the next four years, and New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister, Paula Bennett, announced New Zealand would contribute $12.5 million from its aid programme over the next four years to provide support to the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force and ensure they can maintain the gains which have been made under Ramsey. More than 2,000 New Zealanders served in Solomon Islands under Ramsey over the mission's 14 years, and New Zealand's contribution to the mission, excluding official development assistance, is estimated to be $150 million. That is a contribution Paula Bennett says New Zealanders can be proud of. I think we should be really proud of that. Um, the fact that we've put so many personnel here um, and through the aid programme also are investing in things that make a practical difference um, to the people of the Solomons. So, you know, I'm really confident that, um, you know, I think that the money has been well spent. The total cost of the Ramsey mission is estimated to be close to $3 billion New Zealand dollars, with more than 95% of this bill footed by Australia. But has Solomon Islands made the most of the 14-year reprieve the mission provided? I migrated from Solomon Islands in 2014 to work here in New Zealand and flying out to Honiara to cover the week of celebrations was the first time I had been home since. During the tensions, I was far away in the western province and remember boatloads of people fleeing the capital. Back in Honiara, the first difference I noticed was there was a lot more big buildings along the main road and several large complexes under construction and many more cars on the road. Most of the people I spoke to did not want Ramsey to go. It makes me feel really sad because Ramsey has been doing a lot of work here in the Solomons and uh, has established a lot of uh, things, peace and order, and people are starting to gain confidence when Ramsey was here. Women in particular seemed very concerned. As 
one of the women in Solomon Islands me feel like um, families of Solomon Islands are not safe. But anyways, Ramsey has told Mimi that it is okay. They have trained our policemen. But by the look, you may know that confident for Emilia Goro Ramsey. Like um, some things you may look him happening this time of him life him not changing. I'm not really I'm not really settled down yet. Like killing happening, domestic violence, and I'm really frightening to life really. Some said having Ramsey in the country gave them confidence. With my experience during the Ramses here, I feel safe when I walk around and when I um, go to shops and go to the place I walk. One woman said it was the uncertainty more than anything that was troubling her. We will be thinking that it will be okay, but we are not really sure. We're not really sure what will come after they are leaving the Solomon Island as we are the women of Solomon Island. Because you're already in the past during this ethnic tension. It's really, you know, it hurt us and, you know, put us in some kind of position that we lost, we nothing, yeah? I later asked the Solomon Islands Police Commissioner, Matthew Varley, what he thought of these fears and doubts. Yeah, I can understand that, and I think it's it's easy for people to forget that only 14 short years ago uh, this was a conflict or society in conflict and this was a police force that was completely broken and a government that had lost control. We know that the police force at the time was responsible for some of the crimes that were committed. Uh, We haven't forgotten that Um, and we understand why people are concerned about Ramsey leaving but Ramsey and us have done a lot of work to try and allay those fears. As we've said before, um, more than two-thirds of the police force has been recruited since that period. Uh, It's an entirely new executive leadership team, and we've worked very hard to explain those changes to the community, but also to, I guess, grow a new policing culture inside the RSIPF, one that's based on discipline, one that's based on accountability. On the streets of Honiara, police were out in force both on foot and in vehicles as part of the ramped-up security operation for visiting dignitaries. This high visibility or preventative policing is part of the strategy now employed by local police to rebuild the public's trust and confidence in the force. But some local people still draw an unflattering comparison between policing under Ramsey and what is happening now under the local force. Alice Iteti gave this comparison of two separate incidents... She called local police when her niece went missing in December last year. And I called the police. They said, oh, can you help me to search for my niece? What was their response? Their response is, hey, oh, the, don't worry about her, she's okay. Then how, how sure are you that she's okay? I'm in trouble, that her mind blow me, I'm not settled on that. That's why I'm calling you. You're the solution to my problem that I'm facing right now. And if you talk to me like that, who's going to help me? The second incident relating to the sexual harassment of her daughter happened in 2007 while the local police force was still under Ramsey's control. In that instance, Alice Iteti said things moved quickly. When Ramsey is in Lata, they automatically step in eh? and that case him brought to justice. That's why I, I want people who are fair with the law and they rise to stand for the position for the law for this country eh? and that will make us safe. Commissioner Matthew Varley is aware that work to improve the local force must continue. 
We know that uh, we have a job to do in keeping up the gains that Ramsey has given us. You know, I, I've got no doubt that the challenge ahead for us will be to sustain the logistics and make the police force continue to function to the level it needs to. Uh, but that's my job as Commissioner to work very closely with the government to do that, and I'm very confident that I have their ongoing support for it. Well, sir, thank you very much, Mr Speaker. I rise to move that Parliament... In the final week of Ramsey, the National Parliament convened a special session to discuss the 14 years the mission had spent in the country. Members, for the most part, stood to thank Ramsey and commended the mission for the work it had achieved, echoing the Prime Minister Manasseh Songovare's opening remarks. It had to take the near collapse of our country, Mr. Speaker, for us to come to terms with the reality of our very weak state of affairs. We are here, Mr. Speaker to celebrate the dawning of a second chance to get it right. But one MP, the member for North West Guadalcanal, Bododetki, made this contribution, which gave an indication of why everyone was so thankful for Ramsey. We also like to thank you, the late Andrew Nori, for also saving my life, for risking me the office floor, the opposition then, who was now our Prime Minister, Honorable Manasseh Sohovare. I was kidnapped in my house, brought to the office. I was apprehended because of my support for the Tatan government law, Ulfan. I was to be punished for my choice. The regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands... Uh, there are also several former militant commanders in Solomon Islands Parliament. The most notorious, though, is the Solomon Islands Minister of Fisheries and MP for North Malaita, Jimmy Lucibaya, who in a former life was known simply as Jimmy Rasta, a feared commander of one of the largest arms of the Malaita Eagle Force, known as the Central Lions. Borodetki singled him out in this contribution. We also like to thank him, a special person here today, who is now also an honourable Jimmy Lucibaya, for negotiating my release in the Ranandi area when I was kidnapped the first time in my life. Thank you, Thomas. But despite these improvements, Solomon Islands is still struggling to get free from institutional corruption that became almost the norm during the tensions. A special police anti-corruption task force has led to the arrest of several high-ranking officials. But allegedly corrupt public servants are just the tip of the iceberg, as a local businessman and chairman of the Solomon Islands Chinese Community Association, Matthew Kwan, explains. Corruption, you know, I think by the letter of the law or the, the definition of corruption, I think we're all corrupt. Yeah, we, we do pay people to do some extra things for us to help us get things done quicker. I think, yeah, everyone here in the Solomons, yeah, do accept certain things that do happen. Yeah, if, if you don't help out another person in any way, things just happen a little bit slower. Then you get become over the top where people are expecting things um, to happen. One of the other changes I noticed on my return to Solomon Islands is there seemed to be a lot more young people out and about on the streets. According to the Solomon Islands Statistics Office, youth between the ages of 15 to 25 make up around 20% of the country's population of more than 600,000 people, and only 26% of Solomon Islanders are employed. Recognising the important role young people will play in Solomon Islands' future, Ramsey's last special coordinator, Quinton Devlin, made a special appeal. Never forget the lessons of the past. Violence leads only to sorrow, pain and trauma. Find something that you love doing, 
that makes a positive contribution to your community or to the nation, and this nation will continue to grow from strength to strength, and it will remain the Happy Isles forevermore. The final report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission implicated many high-profile people and their involvement in the violence. When it was completed and handed to the government in 2012, the then Prime Minister Gordon Darcy Lilo declared its contents too sensitive to release to the public. But two years later, after it was leaked, it was officially tabled in Parliament, although never debated. Among its extensive list of recommendations and findings is this. Persisting inequality and open wounds and grievances from the conflict could, if not adequately treated, generate outbursts of violence again. An Anglican nun, Sister Doreen, is known for her work sheltering and caring for victims of domestic violence and child abuse, but she has also done extensive counselling work with survivors of the tensions. She would like to see more done to help the victims of the conflict. You know, sometimes we tend to forget the, the victims. And especially if a child is watching while something is happening, a violent activity is happening. And sometimes we we tend to forget them if they are spectators. And uh, the importance of being able to do groundwork in terms of cancelling is also important. Because they, they grew up and if the anger is still there, they continue with the violent attitude. And land settlement disputes continue as an area of friction, something else acknowledged by the Commission's report. This situation has not changed since the conflict. Many of the Malaitan victims of forced displacement saw no other option than to return to Guadalcanal after peace was restored, mainly to Honiara where Malaitan settlements like Burns Creek and Sun Valley are increasing again. If no precautions are taken, this could generate new civil unrest. The former Guadalcanal militant commander, who is now a church minister, Moses Karuku, says Guadalcanal people still resent the encroachment of settlers on provincial and disputed land outside the capital, Honiara, but are waiting on political solutions to the issue. I think uh, land issue is still one of the biggest problems. Like uh, during the ethnic tension, maybe about 20,000 people uh, leave uh, Guadalcanal, but uh, after when normalcy comes back, the same 20,000 people where they left Guadalcanal, they flooded in, into Guadalcanal. And right now, like, uh, it's an evidence to me, like if you travel just east to, uh, of the international airport, down to here, Ngalibu, uh, a lot of settlers are living inside the Ripple area and even Henderson area. So the same thing is continuing to happen. Where it goes from here is entirely dependent upon the actions of the people and leaders of Solomon Islands. The Ramsey former special coordinator, James Batley, puts this in context nicely. It is really important to acknowledge that Ramsey didn't come here to sort out all of Solomon Islands' problems and and to acknowledge that, of course, Solomon Islands, after Ramsey, still has a lot of challenges as a country. It's still a very young country. Another former special coordinator, Tim George, who took over from Mr Batley, is also optimistic about Solomon Islands' future. Mr George says one of the best things Solomon Islands has going for it is its tight control on guns. I've served in quite a few different countries and I've seen the devastating effect of gun violence in a number of other countries, I mean, far from here, but, um, but just how firstly fortunate Solomon Islands is to be placed right now with a you know, very firm lid on guns, but I think how important that will be in the future to maintain very, very strict gun control. If the Commission's findings are accurate, 
Solomon Islands conflict had its roots in perceptions of inequality and injustice relating to the distribution of resources and occupation of land. All of these components still exist in Solomon Islands, and on top of them now sits the legacy of the conflict and increased population pressure. While the odds appear stacked against Solomon Islands, there is a lot of support as well, and as many have pointed out, the future is in the hands of the nation's people and its leaders. I'm Kuroi Hawkins, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to share or podcast this program, head to iTunes, Spotify, or your Android provider, or radionz.co.nz forward slash insight. That program was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Mark Chesterman. If you have any thoughts on this program, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. Thanks for being with us and thanks for listening.